Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. Today, we are joined once more by Dr. Wendy Witter to conclude our conversation about the book of Daniel. But your exploration doesn't have to end here. She has an online class on the book of Daniel, and the link to the free course will be in the episode notes. You may remember from last week that Dr. Witter has written two commentaries on the book of Daniel. She is a freelance editor and a teacher and just released a new memoir called Every Road Goes Somewhere. Last week, we concluded the conversation talking about how tricky it is to identify the author of the book of Daniel, although the editing of the book reveals how carefully the book was organized. This week, we start the conversation with why it is necessary to read this book as a whole instead of pulling out the fun stories we like to tell, like Daniel in the lion's den or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they are in the fiery furnace. What new insights do we gain once we learn to read the narrative bits with the apocalyptic bits? And as a quick aside, I once more had the wrong microphone picking up my end of the conversation, but you will definitely still hear my excitement about her story and what we can learn from the book of Daniel. So lean in and enjoy the conversation. I think that the point of the book is that God's kingdom will endure. And to get at that message, a lot of what the book does, and specifically those Aramaic chapters, is they point out or they illustrate, they don't tell you, they illustrate for you the superiority of Daniel's God, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. So in chapter two, when Nebuchadnezzar's experts can't tell him his dream, this this is the best of Babylon. They can't do it. And here comes Daniel, and his God is the God with knowledge and wisdom. His God is the one with superior ability to look at the future and to help his servant understand it. In chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar himself says, who is the God who can deliver from my hands? He says that to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, his question gets answered. Israel's God is the one who can do that. He's the only one who can do that. So in every chapter, we have this picture of the superiority of Israel's God over the gods of Babylon and over Nebuchadnezzar himself. I think those, the first, uh, let's see, Nebuchadnezzar disappears in chapter four, but he's mentioned in chapter five. He's like the main character in those chapters, aside from God. God basically is the main character. But even more than Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is the main character. I only realized this right before we got on this call. We have a first person account from yes, Nebuchadnezzar. I love that first person so, account. That's it's so, so weird. weird. I wrote an <laughs> academic article about that. <laughs> I yeah, it is so amazing. And it's probably not all his, it's not his words. You know, some biblical narrator is shaping it, 
but why let Nebuchadnezzar speak? Right. Why is he the one speaking? And I think the reason he's speaking is because for all the chapters before that, we're watching Nebuchadnezzar encounter the God of Israel, and he's being educated. He is the only character in those chapters who we, Adele Berlin, calls characters like this, the fully developed characters. Mm. Daniel, you don't see Daniel's emotions. You don't get to hear what he thinks. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they talk once and they don't say, oh man, we're going to (laughs) die. But Nebuchadnezzar, he's a flaming maniac and you get to see him. And you think, man, this guy's crazy. But in each chapter, he learns more about God. And he makes progress. And when he gets to chapter four, which is the story that he tells, it's this dream that he has. And chapter four is a complement to chapter two, which is his first dream. So in that first dream of the four visions or the four empires, the statue, you know, that gets smashed, a lot of people focus on what the empires are and what that means. But for Nebuchadnezzar, he was the head of gold. Yeah. It was all good for him. But yet, Daniel also says, but you're accountable. God's the one that gave you all of that. And in chapter four, when he has this other dream, you hear echoes that Nebuchadnezzar knew that he'd been told that, but he didn't listen. So he is being held accountable for what God had told him in chapter two. So anyway, why does Nebuchadnezzar get to tell the story? All kinds of reasons. I'll try to spare you the whole academic business, but... Oh, I like the academic business. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Nebuchadnezzar? He's the king of Babylon. What's Babylon in the Bible? Babylon is the quintessential enemy of God. It shows up again in Revelation, right? I mean, it's the picture through the whole biblical story of the enemy of God. And Nebuchadnezzar is its most powerful king. So he's like the paradigm of a Gentile king in opposition to God. And what happens to him? He comes to the place where he acknowledges who the God of Israel is and that he is subject to him. So Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel goes from being this man. He's like the worst king. he's, He's despised. He has to be. He destroyed Jerusalem. He took God's people captive. And yet... He becomes the paradigm for what a Gentile king ought to be. Someday, every Gentile king will bow the knee, whether they want to or not. And Nebuchadnezzar does it. God sort of brings him to his knees. Well, God does bring him to his knees, but he acknowledges it. And he ends the chapter by saying he praises the God who is able to humble. Well, that's amazing. And I think that's why he gets to say it, because putting it in first person, He is like the quintessential enemy representative of the enemy of God. And in his own words, he admits that Israel's God is superior. Because then when you get to chapter five, Belshazzar shows up. And Belshazzar is this no name. He was barely known in history. He's a blip. This is the only chapter he shows up in the Bible. And the narrator draws this contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Chapters four and five, Nebuchadnezzar responds correctly to the God of Israel. Belshazzar, who is known for nothing in history, really, (laughs) in contrast to the great Nebuchadnezzar, who's known for a lot of building projects. And he was a great king. Belshazzar's nothing. And yet he shakes his fist in defiance at the God of Israel. He takes his 
sacred temple goblets, profanes them. Basically, he thumbs his, thumbs his nose at God. And God doesn't give him a chance to repent. There's no call for repentance. And Nebuchadnezzar, or Belshazzar's destroyed that night. He dies. But there's, there is a, the, the narrator makes the contrast between those two characters in that chapter. So what Belshazzar does in the book, even though he's only in one chapter, is he becomes the paradigm for a king who stands against God. And Belshazzar's bad, but his successors are worse. And so he becomes the paradigm basically for Antichrist, if you want to run the whole gamut of scripture. Huh. So Daniel's a great book. <laughs> it's so fun to hear your excitement over it. And I think even just pointing out what is happening as you read the chapters continuously, it's a grand message that gets lost when we isolate the cute stories of, and not to diminish the Daniel and the lion's den, but but then we're focusing on Daniel and the lions and we're missing the bigger point of this Gentile king who is super powerful learning about who the God of Israel is and responding. And yes, I, I think that is important for us to be able to draw that continuation across the entire book. Yeah. If, if we leave those stories as stories we learned as kids, which you have to teach them to children. Of course you do. And they're memorable and they were intended to be enjoyed. Yeah. But you can't leave them there. When you're an adult, if you're content with the story of Daniel and the lion's den, as it was when you learned it in third grade, well, you need to come further. Right. <laughs> you, need, you need to grow up. You right. need to grow up in right. your understanding of the Bible. I've been thinking about this character of Daniel. We see him at the beginning of the book, and he's an interpreter of dreams. God either tells him the dream Nebuchadnezzar had and then how to interpret them, or Daniel himself is having visions and dreams, especially at the end of the text. So the book keeps this dream theme throughout the entirety of the text. But what about that second half? It is a combination of visions and apocalyptic writing. What's going on here? So the first half, the first six chapters are narratives, they're stories, which are much easier to deal with and interpret and understand. The second half is apocalyptic literature. It's a genre of oppressed people, people who are living in circumstances that are really difficult, and it's written to comfort them. So in the Bible, we have Revelation, which is called an apocalypse, <laughs> and probably the second half of Zechariah, there are little snippets here and there where people where people will say that's apocalyptic like Daniel is not necessarily a full-blown apocalypse but it has a lot of the characteristics so the symbolism is number one the animal imagery and symbolism but to us we look at it and we go that's really weird but it was coded language it meant something to its original audience and sometimes we can see what that is but sometimes we just can't the imagery is lost i think to us culturally and not for lack of trying, but just because we don't, we didn't live there. The other thing, apocalyptic literature and the symbolism is not intended to be dissected and outlined and every detail pressed for its meaning. It intends to evoke emotion. So 
when those, when Daniel saw that vision, all of his visions at the end of them, at least the first three, no, first two, he's terrified. He's like undone. He probably, it says he didn't understand it, but he, he certainly felt it. He knew that what he saw was not good. (laughs) This is scary stuff. And we lose that when we try to dissect it. And and when we come at it from a couple thousand years later, right? You know, we see this four-headed leopard. We're like, well, that's weird. Whereas for Daniel's audience, mutant animals like that bode nothing good. That's that's terrible imagery that there's some there's animal with with deformity and and again we we can't capture all of the imagery, but at the very least, we have to try to get enough context when we study that we can imagine the terror or imagine what emotion the imagery was after. And why Daniel couldn't understand part of that is a a trope of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is widely known outside the Bible. There, there's a lot of it in Second Temple literature. And one of the motifs is that the people, the person who sees it doesn't understand it. And they need it interpreted by a heavenly being, usually an angel. So that that's part of the genre that's yeah. at play. So you just talked about apocalyptic literature and creating this emotion of which fear is a dominant emotion there. And yet earlier you said that the whole book is about comfort. <laughs> so yeah. How, yeah. how do we move from fear to comfort in well, this? Well, fear because there's circumstances. Yeah, the, the the circumstances of a of, of oppressed people is terrifying. Right. So that's part of the fear. I mean, Daniel when he sees these vision, yeah, he's in exile, but he's not particularly oppressed. He's living in the king's palace, probably right. Um, I mean, he wasn't working for Belshazzar, but he he had the more posh existence in exile. And actually, the Jewish community in Babylon thrived. So even though they're not a free people, they're also not as oppressed as people on the other side of exile will be when they return to the land. And the Persian period is not too tumultuous. But then when you get into the Hellenistic period, it's awful there's persecution and yeah, life is not necessarily good. So Daniel's visions are reflecting what life was going to be like for his people on the other side of exile. And if you think of Daniel and his immediate audience or not necessarily his immediate audience, because I don't think Daniel put this book together, but people at the very end of Babylonian exile, they're looking forward to returning home. The Persians take over and Cyrus says you can return home. And this is a fresh start. This is what the prophets had talked about, right? It's We get to go back. God's going to restore us. And so there's great expectation. And yet when they get back, it's less than what they had hoped for and less than what the prophets had told them would happen. So there's this delay in prophetic fulfillment and the people are waiting for that. And then the further history goes, the worse things get for the Jews back in the land. And so I think part of Daniel's fear and terror is that, well, you know, the prophets told us about restoration. What what on earth? <laughs> what is this? And the comfort comes in the promise that we see in chapter 7 and resurrection in chapter 12. Mm. Chapter 8 is grim. 
Chapter eight is Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. That's what it's usually called. I like to call it the vision of the evenings and the morning because that's what the angel calls it. And one of the repeat themes of this vision is that time is appointed. All of these times are appointed. And the oppression is terrible. And but it's appointed and it will come to an end. So the comfort of chapter eight is kind of stingy, but it's still comfort, right? God at least has this evil on a leash and it will end. I think the greatest takeaway from chapter eight is the concept of lament. We hear the the angelic interpreter saying, how long? How long is this going to last? And lament is a something in the Bible that we're not necessarily very good at, but we right. need it. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned chapter 12 and resurrection and resurrection is an interesting idea in the Hebrew Bible. It We get itty bitty little tiny references maybe earlier on, but it really is an idea that develops a lot more in second temple literature what is happening in this time period that makes resurrection an interesting idea that is being developed by the Jewish community? That's not where I thought that question was going to go. Yeah, so my sorry. Head, my, you answer the right. question as you where you thought it was going to go. <laughs> well, no, in the Old Testament, it's the clearest picture we get of resurrection. So, yeah, in the Old Testament, you have shadowy imagery of Sheol and the underworld and being gathered to the fathers. But yet, Sheol is not a place where people can praise God. And we do have a couple people raised back to life, but it's not the full-blown resurrection that we'll see in the New Testament. So Daniel is really the only place, Daniel 12 is the only place in the Old Testament where we have a clear resurrection and judgment and reward. And then, of course, the New Testament will develop that much further. I love the fact that you recently, well, this past summer, did a whole sermon series on the book of Daniel in church, uh, because I think <laughs> reading cover to cover, but it's, just, it's a bad, you know, scroll from one end of the scroll to the other end of the scroll is it's not common because of the mix of genres, because of the mix of language, because of the apocalyptic literature, especially down like at the, the second half of the book. What did you discover in studying it specifically for your church instead of the academic classroom? And how did your church respond? <laughs> well, my church's name is Grace, and that really does epitomize the, the general atmosphere of it. We are a small church, and we're a very gracious family. So they extended great grace some weeks. And I will tell you that I have a better appreciation for why some people just don't touch some of those chapters because they are hard. If you're going to touch it, you have to do it in more than one week. And so there were some weeks, chapter nine was brutal. I'll tell you, chapter nine was brutal. <laughs> what <laughs> what, what happens in chapter, chapter nine? Chapter nine. Well, chap see, the thing about chapter nine is most of the chapter is this fantastic prayer by Daniel, this covenant rich prayer of confession and prayer for restoration. And then there's, you know, four little verses at the end <laughs> that are known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. Yes. Yes. So, right. 
70 Weeks of Daniel is it's the commentator for international critical commentaries, Montgomery from way back in the 1900s. He called Old Testament scholarship on the 70 Weeks of Daniel the dismal swamp. <laughs> and it is. It is grim. It's hard to sort through. There's dozens and dozens of interpretations. But here's what I set out when we did the sermon series. For me and for the people in the pew, the message of this book is twofold. It's take heart and stand firm. So take heart. God is on the throne. His kingdom is the only one that will endure. So whatever all the other kings and kingdoms are, they will not endure. So take heart and stand firm. Because you know who our God is, you can stand firm. And then every week we sing Keith and Kristen Getty's song, There is a Higher Throne. And it was fantastic. It was a good reminder. If you haven't heard that song, go find it. It's it's really a beautiful reminder of who of what I think the message of the book of Daniel is, that there is always that higher throne. It doesn't matter how high your president or your king's throne is, there is a higher throne. And all of those earthly kings will one day answer. So, yeah, we did an introduction one week, just an overview of the book and talking a little bit about structures, more lecture than sermon, and I warned them about that. And then for 10 weeks, we did the chapters. We did a chapter a week until we got to chapters 10 through 12, which is really a unit. So we did that in one week. <laughs> that was, that was actually that, that week went pretty well. And then we had a conclusion week. So it took us 12 weeks. And some weeks I know that they struggled and I struggled. Because sometimes the message is hard. The difficulty is, is that there's so, in some of the chapters, there's so much background. And there's so many themes and biblical ideas coming together at once. So chapter nine, this is why chapter nine was so vicious. You've got the imagery of covenant curses, and you've got the covenant, and you've got jubilee, of all things, is in there, and you've got exile, and just all these things from the Old Testament, So, to, and numbers, you've got numbers. Right. <laughs> so to try to give enough background information to make those things sensical, it was a pretty dense 40 minutes, and it was a long one. So I if were I to do it again, I would probably try to do Daniel 9 in two weeks as much as I would hate to do that, but it is a hard chapter. Yeah. There is definitely something about the change of context, right, in the church context and in an academic classroom and of like pulling together all the themes. And I love the connection of all the themes. And so there have been several times on Sundays when I've been preaching and I spend more time talking about context and how it touches all these other parts. And then I'm like, and in the last five minutes, here are the five verses we're supposed to be looking at. <laughs> <laughs> but now, you know, it's connected to a bigger story. That's right. That's right. And for me, that's just, that's an important thing to teach that there is a big story here. And if we miss the big story, the little ones don't, they don't really matter like we think they do. Yeah. When I went to seminary, I think that was one of the most revolutionary things that I couldn't figure out why I had never learned it before. 
that this is one big story and I can make sense of it. It was just life-changing. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is important for the church to take away from Daniel, and specifically these apocalyptic chapters, is its sense of perspective. Hmm. Because, can you explain that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, because we live in such self-preoccupation, and, and I'm not pointing any fingers, I can point at myself, you know. We are so, our world's, paradoxically, I suppose, are big, and yet they're so ridiculously small. You know, when I look at the news feed, like, you know, I think there are lots of other countries in the world where there are things going on. And I, I'm i getting to see about a dog that rescued somebody out of the ice, which is a, you know, a heartwarming, nice story. But what about the people in Rwanda? What about, we just don't have a global perspective as much as we might talk about a global world. And I, for me, the book of Daniel forces me to back up and say, oh, like chapter seven, I think part of the point of chapter seven, which is, so Daniel sees this vision of four beasts, and then he gets this divine throne room scene, which is amazing. The ancient of days sitting on his throne, a river of fire, and then he sees the beasts again. And and then the saints inherit the kingdom. Like, wait, What? <laughs> Who are these people and what's going on? But Daniel 7 gives us this cosmic view of God's plan. And it's the higher throne chapter, right? It's where God is on the throne and his saints will one day reign with the one like a son of man. <laughs> Spectacular chapter. Right. But that chapter forces you to back away from your little world. And you get this cosmic view of God's plan and God's throne. And one day we will reign with him. That's just astounding. There's just such a bigger end game than we often live in, just because of our circumstances and life is so daily. It is. <laughs> so I think that's one of the gifts of at least the apocalyptic visions, is it it if if we get ourselves into it it can change our perspective. If even just for Sunday morning, right? You can go, wow, I didn't, I just didn't think in such cosmic terms. And I think it's encouragement that it's, it's the take heart part of the take heart and stand firm. Yeah. I love that. I think it is, I think you're right in that in our modern world and a post scientific revolution world and a post enlightenment world and all of those things, we, we explain everything um, so specifically that to be able to pull back and look at things cosmically, it's it's something our brains are not so accustomed to doing. It's not something that we often do, but I like how you say that it can really help the church at large uh, refocus their attention and take heart. And it's a it's a different way of reminding ourselves what we're teaching all the time anyway, that God is the one who sits on the throne. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your excitement that comes through very clearly about the book of Daniel. It's a great book. I, I love having these conversations because it forces me to go back and relook at different books and, and to really think about how would we teach it as a whole 
that has a beginning, a middle and an end and has a lesson to teach us and is not isolated stories. And I, I love that you're helping us do that. So thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Thank you for being with me, not just through the Daniel conversation, but through this whole series we've been doing since November on books we rarely preach from. We are heading into a break now as I head to Israel to teach, but I will be back for a special podcast episode during Holy Week in which I partner with some friends to talk about the geography of Jerusalem and how it helps us see the events of Holy Week in a new light. And after that, we will start season six of Context Matters. And I say it every week, but it is true. I cannot do this project without the help of people like Natalie and Doug McGee, Lisa Nickel, and Eric Cummins. They are a part of my Patreon team, and they are the people responsible for the sustainability of this podcast. They're amazing, and I'm so grateful for them. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. We will be back at the beginning of April. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 